This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 5th, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. One aspect of Antonin Scalia's jurisprudence that's largely been overlooked is his relatively consistent advocacy on behalf of the rights of criminal defendants. Kevin Ring is author of Scalia's Court, a legacy of landmark opinions and dissents. We spoke today. Last year, after uh, Johnson v. United States was decided, uh, Michael Magoe wrote in the L.A. Times, and this is the headline here, Justice Antonin Scalia, parentheses, yes, Scalia rules for a criminal defendant. And it, it's interesting that this is the headline because if anybody had more than a passing familiarity with the jurisprudence of Antonin Scalia, you would say, well, that's not actually that surprising. No, that's right. Uh, I think one of the least things known about him was what a strong jurist he was for criminal defendants. And it's for all the reasons people chastise him, his textualism, his belief that the Constitution protects certain rights and liberties and not others. He thought the Bill of Rights was clear about what protections that a criminal defendant had. And so to the extent that they were in there in text, when you had the right to a jury trial, when you had the right to be protected from unreasonable search and seizure, he would protect those diligently more than other justices because he believed um, in giving them their full sort of value. And so in case after case, as you know, and many don't, uh, that made him a leader in criminal defendants' rights. He, some, he, he had said, I, I, I should be the darling of the criminal defense bar. And he was only half kidding. I mean, he may well have been. I mean, I know some criminal defense attorneys who, by their own admission, are liberal Democrats, and uh, they love Scalia on, mm-hmm. on those issues. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the Sykes case, which well, Scalia was ultimately redeemed in the Johnson case that we mentioned here. But this is a, a, an oft-quoted section of his dissent in that case. Uh, We face a Congress that puts forth an ever-increasing volume of laws in general and of criminal laws in particular. It should be no surprise that as the volume increases, so do the number of imprecise laws. And no surprise that our indulgence of imprecisions that violate the Constitution encourages imprecisions that violate the Constitution. Fuzzy, leave the details to be sorted out by the court's legislation is attractive to the congressman who wants credit for addressing a national problem, but does not have the time or perhaps the votes to grapple with the nitty-gritty. In the field of criminal law, at least, it is time to call a halt. I do not think it would be a radical step. Indeed, I think it would be a highly res- it would be highly responsible to limit ACCA, that is Armed Career Criminal Act, to the named violent crimes. And so this is a, a case where the federal government was essentially using, in many cases, state convictions to get to certain multiplied penalties under the Armed Career Criminal Act and Antonin Scalia and other justices as well were asking the question, well, what what limits are we going to place on what crimes actually would qualify you for these very severe penalties? Mm-hmm. And it was totally consistent with his philosophy of textualism, which said we have to give words their ordinary meaning. But when Congress wrote a law like the Armed Career Criminal Act, and it said, you know, these violent crimes that kick in or that that prompt the longer mandatory punishment are, you know, arson, burglary, and other things that have the potential to do bodily injury to somebody else. That is just vague language that you could 
you know, you could have nine justices disagree all day and night about what those are going to mean. And so four times that statute, that clause got challenged at the court. And in Sykes, in the decision you just mentioned, uh, the court kept upholding it and upholding it. And finally, Scalia did win the day on that. And I think it also says something else about him. And I think some of the other justices on the court are getting to this point, which is when you have these stiff mandatory sentences, it's the worst possible combination. So you have a vague criminal statute that a defendant doesn't know or an individual citizen may not know they're running afoul of the law. That's a problem in itself because it doesn't give them – it doesn't respect due process. And, and, and worse, if it's vague enough that it can be enforced selectively, that's a problem too. But then you have the second problem, which is the punishment is so severe. So you've got the worst of both worlds. You have vague statutes. You don't even know if you're you know, committing a regulatory crime in some of these instances. And then you're getting hammered with a 15-year mandatory minimum sentence in federal prison. And Scalia, to his credit, uh, found a lot of problems with uh, the way Congress was drafting these criminal laws. And like he said, let's call a halt to this. He, w- he got to the point where he wanted to stop deferring to Congress's judgment in this area because he knew they were so political. One of the cases uh, he was asked, this is quoted from Paul Clement writing in USA Today earlier this year, uh, Scalia was asked to name uh, his favorite opinions, and he chose Crawford v. Washington, Mm -hmm. which is about the confrontation clause. Can you describe that? Sure. And this is another thing, you know, it seems something maybe only criminal defense lawyers would care about. But once again... The Constitution protects your right to confront witnesses against you. And so he waged this lonely battle at first that said um, the court started moving away into this sort of functional idea that as long as the evidence that was being admitted seemed reasonable or had some indicia of reasonableness or um, responsibility, that would be enough. And Scalia said, no, the whole point of this clause is to allow cross-examination. It requires the, the uh, it allows the defendant to uh, confront the witnesses against him. That's that is what gives it its um, meaning and its value. That's what the amendment is for. And so he kept pushing and pushing again. And Crawford, once again, his view prevailed. He finally won a majority in that. It's precarious in some ways because it, it may not last in his absence. But it's another place where his textualism, his commitment to uh, the Constitution as written, helped criminal defendants in a way that people would not have foreseen. Uh, Scalia writes, the Constitution prescribes a procedure for determining the reliability of testimony in criminal cases, and we lack authority to replace it with one of our own devising. What was that case actually about? What were the facts of it? The facts of that case was that they wanted to allow a defendant not to have to take the stand, but to use out-of-court statements to, to, uh, to make the case against the defendant. And so in Crawford, the defendant asserted his Sixth Amendment right and said, no, that person has to come into court and testify so that there can be a vigorous cross-examination in court, not outside the courtroom where, again, it's a reliability thing. It's, it's what, you know, what people may say when they're not confronted with their testimony and can be impeached personally, in person. And so, um, you know, again, that, that's just a place where uh, his upholding the letter of the law really worked out to the defendant's favor. But... It's consistent with how he did everything else. And and similarly, he was uh, strongly opposed to somebody who had done some blood work uh, in one case saying, look, the person presenting the evidence in court is not the person who worked on the defendant's Mm -hmm. blood. Mm -hmm. And therefore, this uh, we're pretending that we're following a procedure and we think we're following 
you know, the procedure essentially, but we're not following the proper procedure, which is to provide uh, the opportunity for that, that uh, cross-examination. Yeah, and that's, and even that area, the Sixth Amendment is pretty narrow in that area, but he did the same thing in the Fourth Amendment, where you had in Maryland, they passed a law that they wanted to be able to uh, take a swab from the mouths of, uh, you know, people suspected of committing violent crimes. And he said, you know, just because they're in custody for something else doesn't mean that you can use this to create some sort of database by um, swabbing their mouth and then running it through a system. That's You don't have any suspicion that that person committed that crime. You just now have this luxury of this technology to go do that. And he said in that case, which would surprise some people, he said, solving unsolved crimes is a noble objective, but it occupies a lower place in the American pantheon of noble objectives than the protection of our people from suspicionless law enforcement objectives or searches. And um, you know, I think he was just incredibly principled in this area. And in in a whole bunch of Fourth Amendment search and seizure cases, you had the government using geothermal technology to try to find somebody who was growing pot in their house. You had people putting a GPS, the police putting a GPS on the bottom of a car. All these new technologies, something that people might have thought, oh, Scalia, who believes in the 1789 Constitution, he can't possibly apply it to modern phenomenon. But he did time and time again and say that the people are protected from that sort of government overreaching. You're referencing the Jones case? Yes. That was the GPS. And uh, one of the people who was on his side on that was uh, Sonia Sotomayor. Mm -hmm. So in thinking about who's who on the court is going to, quote unquote, have the back of uh, criminal defendants, um, who is it or who, who might it be? It's easier to say who it won't be. <laughs> um, you know, for instance, Justice Alito has, you know, become a reliable pro-government. Um, you know, he is. He, he, it's funny because you know he was Scalito when he was nominated. He's this little uh, Justice Scalia, but he's totally different in this regard. He's more pro-law enforcement. But you have it's more of the left-leaning. Um, justices who have been his supporters. But in some cases, and maybe it's because of his leadership, which is now missing, Justice Thomas got some of these issues too. So whereas they were very pro-death penalty um, and they, you know, and Justice Scalia upheld mandatory minimums in a really terrible case um, and, and gave people the idea that he was sort of callous to defendants' rights or to prisoners, um, it, it really, it was just a matter for him protecting the Bill of Rights. And so I think Justice Thomas is going to be okay. I think Sotomayor will probably be a leader in this. And so might Justice Kagan. But, you know, no one, no one is going to shock you in the way that he did by being so consistent across the realm of cases. In the criminal law, what, what's going to endure uh, from his jurisprudence, do you think? Well, I think... I'm hopeful that he keeps his uh, victories in both the confrontation clause and and also this is a lesser known area as well but he believed strongly in the jury trial right and so he was part of the majority that ended up striking down the mandatory sentencing guidelines because he believed that juries should find these elements beyond a reasonable doubt and not be left to a judge to enhance sentences by finding certain facts again that was really that was something that the left calmed on to, but he thought, again, that's what the Sixth Amendment protected through the jury trial right. I think that's another area where that's very important, that judges, again, it's a separation of powers issue. Judges should have this discretion. Defendants should have the right to be sentenced by, um, by a judge who's independent and also a jury that finds the important facts. I think that's an area that will hold up um, because of his leadership. Um, and we'll have to see what else, because some of his best Fourth Amendment cases, he was in the dissent. Um, and so we'll have to see if those prevail at a later point. 
Kevin Ring is Vice President of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. His new book is Scalia's Court. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.